The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. I was just joking with Craig, if I've got the pointer in one hand and the mic in the other, you know how you make a preacher quiet, right? You take both hands away. <laughs> and then you can't talk, right, Trey? You just can't, can't do it. So anyway, so I will try to make this work. Um, anyway, it's a privilege to be with you. What a great start. What, what a, to, to hear the, how's that? Better? Okay. And hopefully we got a tech person here who can help, so we'll try to make this work. Even more? Yes. Okay, wow. Well, I will try to keep this two millimeters from my mouth. And you all, being my new friends, will remind me if it drifts away. Okay? So, great start. Appreciate uh, Dr. Welch's uh, wonderful, uh, really taking us through the gospel through the whole Bible, through the lens of shame. What a, what a great blessing that was. And uh, so hopefully we will continue in the riches of God's Word in this workshop now. And I want to pray and ask God's blessing on our time. And uh, we'll, we'll start. Uh, Father, we are uh, so grateful that, as the Scripture tells us, though you are high and lifted up, you yet associate with the lowly and with the shamed and the guilty and the weak. And uh, Father, that means that there is great hope for us who all find us in that position in our fallenness and our sin and yet uh, know of such grace in our association and our union with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And how we pray that we would continue to draw near to Him and that He would be at work in our hearts, both in our own walk, in our own sanctification as we study the Scripture together, and also as we seek to be equipped uh, to minister to hurting people. And we know, uh, Father, that uh, dealing with those that are struggling with addictions are, are some of the most difficult uh, cases and ministry that we will do. Uh, and we want to honor you in those things. So will you give us grace that we might uh, huddle up as brothers and sisters in Christ and learn from one another and, and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus as we seek to do ministry in that, in that way. Lord, thank you for uh, these dear people. And I pray that uh, we would be built up in your word in this hour. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, my name is Keith. I am a pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I have the privilege of uh, overseeing a lot of our counseling ministry, counselor training there. I'm also involved, I'm seeing people do this, in the ACBC world. And um, uh, have the privilege of being a supervisor uh, for ACBC. So uh, what I love to do, because I'm a pastor and a supervisor, is to equip and train. And, and uh, in fact, there, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, really a charge to pastors that says that pastors are those who equip the saints... Equip believers for the work of service. And when I think of equipping, I think uh, of lots of things. But one of the things I think of is uh, having the right tool for the job. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Having the right tool for the job. And in fact, um, we had a problem in our house. Uh, a tree in the front yard had gotten big enough that now half of my front yard is shade. And my Bermuda grass, even under the hot Texas sun... Uh, is not growing under the shade. So, so we committed uh, just a few weeks ago to tear up that lawn and put in some more shade-tolerant grass. And I'm looking at that lawn going, how on earth am I going to get that thing 
uh, tilled up. You know, the roots go real, real deep. And, and thankfully, a good friend of ours from church said, hey, I've got this tiller you can borrow. And I was out there like a kid in a candy store trying to keep this thing under control, avoiding sprinklers and hoses and, and Legos in the yard and whatnot. And, and um, having the right tool for the job, as you know, is a key to success in lots of projects. So that's what I want to do in this hour is present what, what I would think of as a toolbox of practices, of principles, of strategies that I find in my counseling ministry have been most useful to counseling those struggling with addictions. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to hopefully walk away and you're going to have 10, 11, 12 tools that you can walk away with tonight for helping to minister to hurting people struggling with various addictions. Now, if you're, if you're new to biblical counseling, I'm making some assumptions and uh, so don't, don't let that discourage you. I'll try to review a few things at the beginning. If you are, have you have been introduced to biblical counseling before and you understand some of those things, uh, a lot of what we'll talk about will be repeated, but hopefully you'll be able to see how those tools are particularly applied in cases where we're dealing with addictions. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so uh, my name's Keith. I'll be your tour guide today, and we're going to jump in and talk about basic counseling principles, procedures, uh, and strategies for counseling addiction. Now, um, so I said that I'm making some assumptions. There are some prerequisites that I'm assuming most of you have had in biblical... In fact, let's just do this. How many of you have had some sort of basic biblical counseling training before? Just raise your hand. Okay, that, that's, that's probably two-thirds, three-quarters of you. Okay, that's great. Um, so if you're brand new, what I want to do is review a couple of basic prerequisites when we think about counseling addictions. Um, one of the things that, that I learned when I was first learning biblical counseling is I thought, okay, I need to learn to be a biblical expert if I'm going to counsel people with deceit and lying or pornography or worry and anxiety or um, chronic pain or OCD or marriage issues that I, you have to go and sort of be an expert in all these different things if you're going to rightly minister to people in counseling. And one of the wonderful things about scripture that you see is that it's not like there's some tools you use for addiction and then other tools you use for marriage. What you see and, and nod your head if you see this, those of you that had classes, is the same biblical truths, the same biblical principles, the same procedures being applied uniquely in different uh, uh, applications of counseling, but they're the same things largely, okay? And, and, and that, is, that is the glory of the strength of the sufficiency of Scripture and the gospel because it's those same powerful truths that the Lord uses in the life of people to transform people regardless of what the counseling uh, pro, um, uh, specific issue is. So, so let's just talk uh, about some prerequisites here you, um, and these are not in your notes, and that's frustrating sometimes. So I, I've got them here. Um, there is a footnote on the first page of your notes to a link to our website. Do you see that there? Yeah. You can go there and you can download. When I, I've taught this course in a week-long seminary environment. So like a lot of preachers, I can just keep going as long as you have time, right? Um, we're going to try to condense these down to one hour, and rather than just blow you over like we're trying to drink out of a fire hose. I'm going to focus on just these procedures and principles. I gave you a whole appendix in your notes without blanks of extra stuff 
And then you can go to our website and download several hours of free training from our training center uh, that I hope will be a blessing to you, okay? So if some of the stuff you're like, I have no idea what that is, don't worry about it. You can download those resources, okay? First of all, we need to understand a biblical view of addiction. We need to understand biblical anthropology. Things like worship, desires, the heart. Biblical anthropology just means how do we understand people from a biblical standpoint. That's anthropology. Uh, biblical psychosomatics, that's a big $100 word. That means the relationship between the spiritual part of you and the physical part of you. And God made us both body and soul, right? So in addiction, both the spiritual part of us and the body part of us are engaged when we're struggling with addiction. So we have to think about that through a biblical lens. We have to talk about Addiction and the gospel, certainly, that's the center point of any uh, ministry that claims to be biblical, is understanding how the gospel uh, works in that. And then finally, we have to understand something of basic biblical counseling principles like gathering data, building involvement, analyzing the problem. Okay, so let's just look up briefly about some of those things, okay? This is for free. This is not in your notes. This is not principles and procedures. This is prerequisites. But I need to put some of these things in your head so that the principles and procedures will make sense. Okay? The, 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 main, the main metaphor, the, the main uh, picture that the Bible uses to communicate the experience of addiction is the picture or the metaphor of slavery. Uh, we become enslaved to things that are harmful and destructive and sinful. And, and like slavery, we can't help but obey our master who Romans 6 says before Christ, our master is sin, right? We are enslaved to sin. So, so we have to understand something of the metaphor of spiritual slavery as the main explanation through which the Bible speaks to the issue of addictions. We also have to understand something of the worship and idolatry. Um, and again, this is all review, but... Uh, Dr. Ed Welch, who just spoke in his book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, which I think is the top book on understanding addiction, he describes addiction as a worship disorder. And if you're not familiar with that sort of terminology, if you're brand new to biblical counseling, th that is worship is the main thing God made us to do, right? And so when we think of the problems of life, sin problems, problems of suffering, problems with people, all of those, the Bible connects with those by helping us to see those as ultimately worship disorders, problems of worship. We're worshiping something else other than the God who made us. And cross-reference Romans chapter 1 that explains that that's what all fallen sinful people do. We have to talk about desires. We'll talk about that more in a minute. We have to talk about deception. We'll also talk about that in a minute. Deception and desires are always involved in addiction. Pleasure. Uh, newsflash. You would not ever sin if there wasn't something pleasurable about it. Right? Can we just be honest as brothers and sisters? That's, that's part of why we struggle with sin, uh, certainly as unbelievers, but even as those who have been redeemed, the indwelling sin, we continue to struggle with indwelling sin because there's something attractive, there's something pleasurable. So in addiction, we have to identify what that is so we can help people. Uh, there's a substance... Now, if you're putting heroin into your body, there is a foreign substance going into your body and doing physiological things inside of you. Alcohol does the same thing. But the other thing that, that science has helped us to understand is that when you go gamble, 
That's considered an addiction in the secular literature. When you go and gamble or when you look at pornography, there are chemicals in your body that are released that are part of the experience that we call addiction. So there's always substances involved, either foreign substances you're putting inside your body or natural substances that the activity you're engaged in cause a release of in your body. Uh, we have to talk about habits. We have to talk about the body component, the, the physiological aspect of uh, addiction. I'm so grateful that Dr. Charlie Hodges is here. He'll be speaking in a general session, uh, perhaps some workshops, and, and he is he is a ACBC counselor who's also a physician. And so he's going to speak to this issue of uh, physiology and addiction. Um, we also have to understand something of biblical anthropology, that we think about people in terms of dependence, worship, their heart, and their desires. And, and we'll talk about all of those uh, as we move on. But let me just talk about dependence. Why do people become dependent on substances or activities that are harmful to them in some way? Why, why is that? The answer is because Romans or Genesis 1 tells us that we were not made independent creatures. We were made to depend on who? We were made to depend on God. The, the creature relying on the Creator, even the very breath that we take is a gift of His wonderful common grace to us. So we, we were made not to be autonomous and independent, but to be detent, dependent and underneath His sovereign care. So sin comes into the world. We don't cease to be dependent. But what we do in our fallenness is we come to look to depend on all these other things. And, and we, we chronically depend on all these other things instead of chronically depending on the God who made us. So, so dependence is not wrong. Dependence is actually a very part of the way God made us. The problem is sin scrambles that process so that we worship the creature instead of the creator, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, so much more could be said on each one of these, but that's just a little bit of review. We also have to understand something of biblical psychosomatics. And uh, this picture, of course, not in your notes. It's on our website. Um, you can email me if you want. I'll send you these slides if that would be helpful. But, but this, this demonstrates something of what the Bible says if we were to make a picture based on the biblical data that we are both an inner man and an outer man, right? There, there's the, the inner man. That's the part you can't see, the spiritual part of you. Then there's the outer man. That's the part you can see, your body, your brain, your tissue, your muscles, your neurons, all those sorts of things. And what we see as we, we study Scripture is that the Bible says it's the inner man that really drives the moral issues of life in the outer man. So, so if, if you're driving home tonight back to the hotel and you get angry at your spouse, remember what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6? Your mouth speaks from that which fills your, your heart, right? See, that didn't come from your body your outer man. It came from your inner man. It came from that spiritual part of you. So in addiction, the problem with addiction is addiction affects both your outer man and your inner man. So as a biblical counselor, you have to understand how is that playing out and to make sure, for example, if you are working with a heroin addict, you're probably going to want to solicit the help of a physician who is trained to help deal with the body part of that, coming off of the heroin, the withdrawal, and all that happens with that, to do that wisely uh, as well as to minister to the spiritual issues, the heart issues that are involved with that. 
We also have to think about addiction and the gospel. And this is just some stuff from um, an exposition of Romans 6. Um, when people come to Christ, they have a new identity, a new ability, a new practice, a new position, a new growth, and a, and a new future. And that's basically an outline of Romans 6. But, but if, as biblical counselors ministering to addicts, we have to help them to see, as we just heard, that it, the only hope is our union with Christ by coming to Him by grace through faith, right? And, and that, that new identity because of our union with Him is what transforms how the addict, now redeemed, right, begins to think about himself or herself. So the gospel is uh, at the core of ministry in that regard. And then finally, this is again for free, this is by way of review, we have to understand some basic biblical counseling principles. Now again, if you've had a course, you've heard these before, right? Gathering data, building a relationship, analyzing the problem, ministering the word, providing gospel hope, and assigning homework, okay? So all of those are prerequisites that I'm going to now build upon with these principles and strategies, okay? So um, you good? Mach 2 with my hair on fire. That's what I like to do. So, Okay, so let's come now to the first principle that I want you to see as we think about uh, counseling those struggling with addiction. I learned this from Paul Tripp. Okay, so giving credit where credit is due. I learned this first from Paul Tripp many years ago. And, and Paul Tripp described how we need to deal with two levels of addiction. Two levels of addiction. Let, let me, can I show you those two levels? Okay, turn in your Bible with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Let, let's just pick one biblical example, and we'll try to make sense of this through uh, an example here, okay? Philippians chapter 3. Okay, so the Apostle Paul is writing here, as you know, to, to the believers at the church at Philippi. And, and in this context, uh, he's been talking about um, uh, his own history, right? He's talking about um, uh, his background as a Hebrew of Hebrews. And, and you remember, he gets to that, that, great, that great climax of Philippians chapter 3. Where he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's saying, my only hope and now my only identity is Christ, okay? So he's talking about that and he says uh, as he's unfolding this, he's talking about um, how others, and these are the people that the church are trying to minister to, they've gone astray from spiritual things. And, and he's lamenting that in Philippians chapter 2 verse 18. He says this, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So these are people that started off professing faith in Christ, but as they walked away from the faith, they really showed that their faith was not genuine, okay? And, and in describing those people that have fallen away, listen to how he describes them. And I want you to listen for the phrase that addresses addiction, okay? L listen here. Uh, verse 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, in one sense, we could say all of those apply to fallen people and even to people struggling with addictions. But notice the little phrase there, whose God is their appetite. Now, taken at face value, these are people that have taken a good thing, food, that God gives for us that we need, right? We, we need food. They've taken a good gift that God has given them, and they've turned it into what? An 
Say it. A God. And I, I love, uh, I, I learned this from David Pallison. We take the good gifts that God gives us and we turn them into gods. And I love Pallison. He says, God's good gifts make good gifts, but bad gods. Right? So, so notice here, what does this have to do with addiction? Do you see the two levels of addiction here? There is the external, or what, what we might, what Paul Tripp calls symptom addiction, okay? The external thing. And in, in Philippians 3.19, what's the external thing that the person is abusing? What is it? It's food. And we see here, food is not necessarily a bad thing. It's usually one of God's good gifts. Um, but they have turned it into something that God never intended for it to be. That is a God. So if you've got somebody who is, uh, let's say you've got a, um, a person who's struggling with bulimia. Now we don't th typically think of a, of a bulimic, an eating disorder, as being an addiction. But I want you to see how it really fits into the category according to Scripture. I'm taking a good gift that God has given me and I'm overindulging in it. Okay? That's, I'm overindulging in it. That's what Paul Tripp calls symptom addiction. It's slavery to some physical substance or an activity or food or the Internet or Facebook or shopping or chronic binge watching on Netflix or I'm not trying to step on your toes I'm really not um, but but it's there's something that we are overindulging in now sometimes those things are intrinsically sinful like drugs sometimes they are good gifts right if I get on Amazon and I buy something and it's a good price and well that's that's one of God's good gifts but if I'm always shopping I'm always on Facebook I'm I'm always entertaining myself okay that that becomes uh, inordinate and that's part of the problem so there's slavery to some physical substance or slavery to some pleasurable activity that brings a physiological reward like pornography like video games like gambling like shopping uh, all of those can be in those categories. Now, that's what Philippians 3.19 here connects with the food. That's the external thing. But here's the problem, and this is what the world's approach to counseling, and as biblical counselors, we agree with this. You've got to deal with the substance, the gambling, the pornography, the alcohol, the drugs. But a biblical counselor says that's not the real problem. Now, notice, look back at the text. What is the real issue according to Philippians 3.19? It's not just the substance. It's not just, in this case, the food. What is it? It's the false worship of the heart. It's become a god. And, and you, don't, you don't think of in and out French fries as a god. But it can be. It can be. Anything can become a god replacement. That's Romans 1, right? That's what we do in our fallenness. We, re we replace uh, the truth of God for a lie. And Paul says then we, we worship the creature instead of the creator. Anything that God creates in this world can become a false savior, a false God that we then worship. So when you're dealing with addiction, the principle here is you've got to deal with both levels. You've got to deal with the substance, the, the symptom level, the food, the alcohol, the drugs, the gambling, the pornography. Yes, yes, yes. 
but you also have to deal with the spiritual issue behind that, which is the false worship of the heart. So let's go to this next thing, what Paul Tripp calls causal addiction. That's the God replacement that's ruling the heart. Now let's talk about some of these things. Um, if we get under the hood of people and we say, what's really driving this behavior? Why are they looking at pornography? Why can they not stop gambling? Why are they drinking alcohol to excess? Why can they not put their phone down? Well, the Bible gives us some clues. The Bible, first of all, says that there are desires. Desires. Ephesians 2, 3 calls them the lusts of the flesh. You remember those? And we see it again in James chapter 1. We'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. But the, 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 word, the word desires, and your Bible may translate it lusts, um, it, it's, a, it's a governing desire. It's a ruling desire. Think of it like this. It's, it's, a, it's something you want that has its hands on the steering wheel of your heart. Okay? Something you want that is steering your life certain, a certain direction. And, and the point of Ephesians and the point of James, we'll look at in just a minute, is that governing desire, that ruling desire, is what is motivating you toward that issue. Okay? So you've got to find out. Uh, let's, let's pick um, alcohol. What desire is driving that person to drink too much? And you might think that if you can figure out what it is for one person, you got it all figured out, right? You just, oh, that's it. So, so it, it may be, it may be that um, uh, the, 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 guy, the businessman, the, the businessman who is running this company, he's got employees, he's got finances, he's got long-term goals, he's got all this stuff, he's got a family, he's got, he's got health issues, and the stress on his life is overwhelming. And if he just goes home and has a few drinks, he can relax for a few minutes. And the desire there is he wants some peace for a few minutes. And the alcohol provides the peace. So the alcohol is the, the symptom addic addiction, right? The heart issue, what the causal addiction is the desire for what? Peace. For peace, okay? Now contrast that with the young man or young, young woman who grew up in a Christian home, Bible-believing church, goes off to university. And she meets some friends. And they're going to go out and party with the sorority that night. Okay? Now, she has never had a drop of alcohol in her life. Her parents didn't drink. She, she knows that alcohol can be dangerous. But in that moment, she wants to be liked by her friends. She wants to fit in, right? She wants to be a part of that. She doesn't want to be the one person saying, no, 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 I'm not going to go do that. I don't drink. So, same external right? Alcohol. What's, what's going on in the heart? Is it peace that she wants? No. What is it? Acceptance. Acceptance or uh, the approval of friends. And so you see that there are dozens of different desires or heart issues that drive addiction. And they're not all the same. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I see a lot of in our church is counseling young men struggling with pornography. And I'm here to tell you that there's not a one-size-fits-all reason for why a young man looks, looks at pornography. In fact, uh, th this is not... This is an associated reason. It's not the real reason. But do you know, when I ask an 18 or 19 or 20 or 21-year-old young man, why do you look at pornography? 
you know what the number one answer I've gotten in 15 years of counseling? I was bored. You were what? You were bored? Now, now again, that's not all there is to it. There's other things going on that he may not realize. But something as simple as boredom, and I want to feel something. I want to enjoy something. I, I want some excitement in the midst of my boredom. Okay? So, anyway, so the desires of the heart. Okay? Um, turn in your Bible with me to... Uh, are you tracking with me, by the way? Yeah. And you can hear me okay? Yeah. Great. So, we got, we got this external, the, the, the symptom addiction, and you have the causal addiction. The external substance or activity, and then you have the heart issue, the false worship. That's what we're trying to figure out is these two levels. Uh, look at James chapter 1 with me. And, um, is it addiction or sin? Ma'am? Is it addiction or sin? Well, if there's false worship going on, what do you think? It's sin. It's sin. Yeah, it sure is. And, and it's not sin just because you shouldn't get drunk. It's sin because you are worshiping a false god. Yeah, addiction is certainly uh, a sin issue. Okay? So, uh, where are you? James chapter 1. Uh, we, we could spend all night talking about this. But um, what James does for us in this text, in chapter 14 to 16, is he describes for us the progression of temptation. Are you familiar with this? And and all I want to highlight for you, we're just going to wave, we're going to, we're going to do the flyby, right? We're going to go by at 65 miles an hour. We're going to wave our hands at this verse, okay? It's not, not even fair to the, the profundity of this text. But I want you to see, as James explains why people are tempted and fall into sin, is because deceit and lies are involved. Uh, look at uh, James 1, verse 14. Uh, we're not tempted because God tempts us. That's where he starts. It says, 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There's our word again. That's a desire. That's that governing desire, lust. But notice with me, the little word in my Bible is enticed. You see that word there? That word means to lure by deceit. Or as we say in Texas, to lure by deceit. You've got to pronounce it right where I'm from. Um, now, I live in a town on a lake, Lake Granbury, and great bass fishing. Okay? So let's say Bobby Bass is happily swimming in Lake Granbury having a great time, and me and the buddies go out, and we pick our, our best bass lures, and we throw them into Lake Granbury. What are we trying to accomplish by throwing lures into Lake Granbury where Bobby Bass lives? What's that? We are trying to fool the fish. That's right. We are, we are liars when we fish. We are trying to deceive and lie and fool Bobby Bass into thinking that what he looks, looks to him like lunch will actually make him my lunch. Right? Okay? That, that, that is exactly what the word means. It means to lure by deception, to lure by lying. And what J James borrows that term and he says, guys, this is why you fall into temptation. Because you see something, it looks attractive, it looks pleasurable, and what you don't see is there's a hook in it. And the reason we buy into that is we think there's something promising, there's something pleasurable. And you remember how, remember how Solomon describes this to his son? 
in Proverbs chapter 7, right? The young man who goes after the immoral woman, right? In chapter 5, he says, the lips of the adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. She looks good, she sounds good, it's pleasurable, it's attractive, and in the end, what? She's as bitter as wormwood, she's as sharp as a two-edged sword, her steps go down to death, her feet lead to Sheol. She looks good, it's attractive, it's desirable, and in the end, she will take you to hell, and it will kill you. That's what this word means. It's luring. It's deceiving you by offering something attractive, but deceiving you about its real nature. So think about that in the context of addictions. Here's one of the things you have to answer. What is it that is pleasurable about the addiction? Okay, we might be able to figure that out. And then here, here's the $100 question. What lies does this person need to embrace or what lies are they embracing that's leading them to the addiction? Young man says, this pornography will satisfy me. A woman says, if I just buy that. A man says, I just need peace. This will bring me peace. And it does for a little bit. Momentary pleasure, momentary peace, and in the end it comes back and it kills you, right? It hooks you. Okay, so, so understanding the lies that are being embraced is a key. Okay, we've got to move on. Um, letter C, what are the habits that have formed? Have you noticed in all addiction there are habits? And one of the things that a skilled biblical counselor does as he gets to know the person that he or she is ministering to is trying to figure out what's the cycle of addiction? What is the individual cycle that this person um, is going through from the very moment that the temptation starts to gratifying that temptation by giving in to the sinful addiction? Okay, and, and one of the things that I like to do, and maybe this is helpful for you, is I'm getting to know somebody, get to know their unique situation. I'll actually draw out a chart or a, a picture of the, the cycle of addiction that they're stuck in. And the Bible tells us that we are habitual creatures. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, the founder of our movement, Jay Adams, talked about in his earliest books. Um, we are creatures of habit, and that is by God's wonderful design. But in our fallenness and sin, that good capacity for habit gets hijacked towards sinful things. And that's why we get stuck in these ruts. So, so let me give you an example of how this works, okay? So where does addiction start? There's some heart struggle, okay? And that leads to pursuing relief or satisfaction in that start in that heart trouble in some physical substance. This alcohol will bring me peace. This alcohol will allow me to relax and have a good time with my friends. Um, it makes me think of the story. Actually, my, my son is here uh, with us uh, this weekend, so it's good to have him. And I remember the first time we took my three kids to a Ranger game, Texas Rangers. And, and my kids, you know, pretty, pretty sheltered kids, and we're sitting there. We had a wonderful friend gave us uh, uh, tickets, so we're right behind uh, the third baseline. And we got there early, and we're looking at the, the fans and the, uh, the players in the field, and everything's great. And all of a sudden, people start coming around us, you know, and they sit down and they sit down and they're coming around us here and, and, and they all have what people have at sports events, beer. And I watched my son and he's, he's like this. And I noticed, you know, there's something wrong. I said, what's wrong? He's like, daddy, we're surrounded by beer. 
You remember that? You were younger. Um, and um, I realized he'd he never been you know, around that before. It's like a brand new experience, and it freaked him out. You know? um, so one of the lies about sports is what? Every, every beer commercial during a sports game has the same marketing line. You can't have a good time unless you are drinking our beer. Okay, there it is. So, so you can't have a good time. So what's the cycle, right? I, want, I need a good time. I need to have a good time. I need to relax. So I turn to the beer, and guess what? That doesn't satisfy me, not ultimately, right? And so that leads me to crave more. Well, maybe, maybe I just need to do this again. Maybe it's about doing more or in drugs, going from pot to something harder, like meth. Um, so, and you see, they crave more, and then the whole thing starts over. So in, in biblical counseling, what we're trying to help people to see is that whatever that heart struggle is, is found where? It's found in Christ. If it's a struggle for peace, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Um, peace, satisfaction. So we're, we're taking this and we're helping them to see that that is a struggle that can only be satisfied in Christ and his word and other means of grace like believers. And the heart is satisfied, not, not, not ultimately, because it's not like we, we go to Christ and he fills us up and then we walk off the stage. It's we continue to go to Christ, right? We, we continue to go to him as the fountain of living water. Um, and so we go back, new habits are formed through that, and we continue a, a good cycle of relying on Christ. And you say, well, where do you see that in the Bible? That's John 15, right? Abide in me. Remain in me. Keep coming back to me. Stay connected to me. That's the whole point. So, okay, we need to move on here, and, uh, and you get the idea. Let's talk about some other principles. But the point here is you have, to, you have to deal with two levels, two levels of the addiction. Data gathering is so, so important in addiction. It's really important in any counseling situation because the Proverbs tell us that if we give an answer before we've really heard, it's folly and shame to us. Proverbs 18, verse 13. So when in gathering data, addictions can be very, very complicated. And I appreciate Dr. Welch's explanation how you, know, you get to know a person and then you get to know a little more, and you get to know a little more, and, and you're getting all the way back to see who, who is this person, and why has he or she, uh, what is their story, what, what is their background? So some external factors, their family, job, finances, relationships, uh, internal factors. What are they thinking? What are they wanting? We just talked about that. What's the desire that, that, is, that is leading them to, to pursue it in the addiction? Uh, Dr. Stuart Scott, one of my mentors, uh, talked about some common factors. These are some common factors you're going to see in counseling addiction. An inaccurate view of self, avoidance of conflicts or trials, lack of trust in God. Interesting. You will tend to see perfectionistic tendencies going with addiction. That's, that's a correlation that you'll see over and over again. Desiring a quick fix. You know, why do I, why do I turn to pornography, the married man says, when he, he needs to be learning how to sacrificially love and please and serve his wife? Well, the answer is one is instant gratification, and one takes the grace of God applied to life in work and sacrifice and biblical love. So the quick fix you see there. Motivated by fear. 
Uh, so much of, of addiction is motivated by uh, fear at, at some level. Patterns and habits, peer pressure, we talked about that. The young lady that goes off to college, uh, meets some friends, they go off drinking. The peer pressure, triggers, um, and this is just a, a really interesting part of how God makes us, how there are certain things that tend to trigger temptation. You'll see that in dealing with uh, folks struggling with addictions and often identifying what are those triggers um, is part of progressive sanctification. We, we put off, we put on. We try to avoid some of those triggers or, or at least help them to prepare for dealing with those triggers in a way that will lead to righteousness and not sin. Okay, so data gathering, another very important principle. Next, letter D, radical amputation. Uh, if you're in James still, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. And this is a, uh, this is a uh, particularly important principle when talking about addiction. Uh, radical amputation. What is, what is the principle here? The principle is if something is causing you to be tempted, if something is leading to sin, you need to get rid of it. Now, you know this text. Jesus is talking about adultery in context in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but he says, you know, it's not just physical adultery. He says, um, if a man lusts after a woman, he's already committed adultery with, in his heart. So, so what's the solution? Well, Jesus focuses in on what we call in biblical counseling the principle of radical amputation. Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Listen very closely. Jesus is not saying that you have to do this to go to heaven. What he's saying is a real Christian is willing to be radical in getting rid of things that lead them to temptation and sin. That's what he's saying. So if as a biblical counselor you're dealing with somebody who is unwilling to be radical to put blocking software on the, on the, on the computer to avoid pornography. Uh, someone who is willing to, unwilling to break a relationship in which addiction is part of the relationship. Someone who is unwilling to uh, put themselves under accountability, but to, to distance themselves from whatever that addiction is. A person who is unwilling to be radical in their fight against sin, Jesus is saying here, is in danger of going to hell. That's how serious this is. And, and I think, uh, I don't have any scientific statistics, but just thinking about the counseling cases I've done over the years, there is a correlation between counseling success in addiction and a person's willingness to be radical in getting rid of things that contribute to the addiction. Okay, so, so that's good to remember. Um, I hope that will be helpful to you. So there's some things there. Um, I, I do point out here in the notes, um, if there's a physical or medical factor, it is prudent to work with a physician in those situations. We're blessed in our church. One of our elders is a retired medical doctor, and we talk to him all the time in our counseling ministry. If there's any sort of physical, medical, physical symptoms going on, we talk to him. Uh, he's not practicing anymore, so we'll refer to other practicing physicians, but in terms of information, it's awesome having a doctor on your elder board. Okay, I highly recommend that to you if you can find one. Okay, letter E, total life restructuring. 
this is something you can find in Jay Adams' book, Competent to Counsel. Um, I remember reading this years and years ago uh, as a college student looking to go to seminary and how life-changing this book was for me personally. Um, here's what Jay Adams said. You, you see the picture there? Okay, so here's the problem. The problem is addiction. It's alcohol, it's drugs, it's gambling, it's video games, it's pornography. What Adam's point was is you need to think about that person's problem not with a microscope, but with a wide-angle lens. You need to zoom out and look at the big picture. How does that addiction, how does that problem uh, relate to their work or school, their physical health, their marriage, their finances, their family life with children, social activities, friends, if they're a professing believer, um, a, a, their church involvement, their, their spiritual disciplines. You need to look at the problem as it relates to all these sorts of things. And then Adam said this, and it's so helpful. A solution to any problem in counseling, addiction or otherwise, is not just by, by honing in on the specific problem, it's helping that person to restructure their whole life to promote godliness instead of sin. So for example, let's say, uh, again, we've got the alcohol problem, and we come to find out that um, one of the contributing factors is that the person in the family with the alcohol problem has at their disposal money. They've got credit cards, they've got debit cards, they've got cash. Well, total life restructuring would say, okay, how do we address that so that it helps promote godliness instead of sin? So maybe, at least temporarily in the family, that family member loses that privilege. In fact, we go right back to Matthew 5 and say, hey, here's an area you need to get rid of because it's contributing to your sin. So maybe that person uh, uh, comes under a very tight accountability regarding money so that they don't have cash to stop by the bar on the way home or to stop by the, the liquor store to bring uh, a six-pack home or, or whatever it is. So you're thinking about the, the, the problem of addiction, but you're thinking about it in terms of the overall issues of their life. And then what you're doing is you're restructuring all those areas areas so that it promotes godliness instead of sin. So this is from um, his book. Uh, it says, uh, Adam says, it means looking at the problem in relationship to all areas of life and then contributes toward the solution. You say, how? Uh, let me read this quote to you. Um, he talks about here how structure often is essential for affecting the twofold change we're discussing. Structure helps both in putting off and putting on. And if you're brand new to biblical counseling, that's one of the principles I'm assuming you understand. But basically, in every counseling issue, there's something the counselee needs to learn to put off. That's the bad thing you shouldn't be doing. And then there's something that needs to be that, that that needs to be replaced with, the righteous equivalent. So if the person is a chronic liar, Ephesians 4 says they need to learn to speak the truth. If they're stealing things, they need to get a job and work hard and be a good steward so that they can provide for their own and, and also for somebody in need. So there's this putting off, putting on. And, and uh, Adam's point is that this total life restructuring helps promote the putting off and putting on. So, so let, let's think about this for a moment. In addiction, um, let, let's, let's pick pornography, okay? Pornography often is a failure to understand biblical love versus biblical lust, okay? Let's compare and contrast those for a minute. Lust is selfish. 
It is self-focused. It's about personal gratification. It's about my needs and, and my desires. And uh, it, it is wholly and utterly a selfish pursuit, which is why... Which is why marriage is not the solution to a lust problem. It's not. Because love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is the polar opposite of lust, isn't it? Love does not seek its own, right? The model that Jesus gives us, or uh, that Paul gives us, excuse me, talking about the Lord Jesus in Ephesians 5 is, a husband sacrificially loves his wife as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her, sacrificing for her well-being. So, so in something like this, putting off lust, a selfish view of sexual relationships, if you think about the context of marriage, and replacing it with a biblical love that is about giving and sacrificing and pleasing and, and considering your spouse is more important than yourself. Okay? And, and total life restructuring is one way that we help implement that. Okay, again, so much more could be said on that. I refer you to Adam's book uh, for future reference. Uh, what is the heart and addiction? We, we just talked about this a moment ago with James. So this is review. What are the ruling desires? What are the lies that have been embraced? Well, let's think about another one. What, um, why do people gamble? Why, why does that become something that is chronic and, and people sacrifice their life savings. And, and what, is, what is it uh, about gambling? Uh, talk to me here. What, what do you think? Easy way to money. Okay. The promise of easy money. Okay. What else? The rush of winning. The rush of winning. Okay. What else? Entertainment. Yeah, entertainment. Yeah, having a good time. Okay. So again, you're seeing it's not a one-size-fits-all motivation for this sort of thing, right? So you're, so you're thinking, what is that desire? Okay, to have a good time, the rush of winning, uh, uh, getting rich quickly. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a um, it's a lie, isn't it? Because that rush is there for a minute, and then you realize your pockets are empty. Right? Uh, you might win the slots once and then you just put it right back in there and you walk away and, and the casino wins. I mean, casinos are not doing as good as they're doing because the mathematical odds are in your favor, are they? But in the moment, you're not thinking any of those things, are you? You're thinking, I want the rush. I want to get rich quick. I, I want to have a good time. I want to be entertained. So again, what's the ruling desire? What's the lies? What patterns have been developed? It's interesting, again, going back to the habits, how people keep going back to the same things over and over and over again. It may be, this is what I do on my way home. It may be, this is what I do on weekends. Um, video games. Video games. Um, way, way out of control, aren't they? Um, video games can be... Some video games can be a good gift that God intends for us to enjoy in moderation. But we think about our young people. We think about grown men that have not grown up in this area. I mean, I don't know if you're seeing some of these marriages and these wives say to me, my husband is on the video games. He's on the computer. He's on his Xbox the whole time. And you're going, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to grow through that by junior high, right? I mean, that you're, you're supposed to grow up and realize that's great, but you're not supposed to like, make it what you do in life. Why does that happen? You know, it, men get stuck in these ruts. It's what they, they come home, they want to disconnect from their job, and, and that video game becomes an alternative universe in which they live and enjoy in some cases. 
So what are the patterns there? Here's another thing. Um, most addicts are skilled, chronic liars. So one of the challenges of addressing uh, addiction in counseling is that uh, you don't even know if you're getting the whole story. In, in fact, uh, love believes all things, so we want to start with a good motive. But more often than not, you need to have in the back of your mind, even as you believe the best, I also need to believe the best in wisdom. Because addicts are experts at lying, deceiving, hiding, sneaking, changing the picture to make it look different than it is, telling half-truths, exaggerating the truth, and all these sorts of things. Can you see that in the back? That's kind of small. Okay, uh, my email address is somewhere in the notes. Email me, I'll send it to you. You can just relax and you can fill the blanks in later on. Okay, so let's just think about this. You must address deceit and lying in helping people with counseling addictions. They're, they always accompany addiction. You, you will see it every single time. The counselee, first of all, must repent of all forms of lying and learn to speak the truth. So here's what you do. You say, um, you're getting to know somebody, and they tell you about their addiction, and you say, what else? Okay, what else? Have you told me everything I need to know? What else haven't you told me? Okay. What else is there? And you have to be persistent. And then, remember, remember Halo data? Remember that? The nonverbal stuff? Your biblical counselor radar is pinging, bing, 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 bing. You're looking for Halo data. You're looking for things that don't add up. And when you see things that don't add up between what they're telling you and what you're seeing or what you're hearing from other evidence, you ask them about it. Now, help me understand. You said this, but this other thing is going on. And you lead them to see. And you need, you need to have a, I call it a pull the car over conversation. You pull the car over and you say, sir or ma'am, I love you. I'm your brother in Christ. I'm your sister in Christ. I want to help you. Okay? Um, I cannot help you. And more importantly, the scripture says, if you're not willing to be honest with your God, let alone with me, right? There's no hope for you. I can't help you if I don't know everything. Okay? Now, now you, you can't you can't say that without this whole other thing called a loving, caring, counseling relationship. Okay, So you say that in the context of a loving, caring, counseling relationship. But you need to be a bulldog of Christ-like love when it comes to this sort of thing. And you need to pursue them. You need to ask them. One of my mentors, Randy Patton, you guys know that name? He, he, when I was training, he, he, I remember this phrase. You always ask the next question. If it doesn't add up, don't say, okay. In your notes, doesn't add up. Well, let's move on. You say, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean by that? Okay? And you've got to get to the bottom. And then once you do that, you call them to repent before the Lord of every and any and all deceit and lying. Now, now remember this. Remember Ephesians 4.15, Ephesians 4.25? It's not just about saying, I'm not going to lie anymore. That person needs to learn to be a truth teller. And that just doesn't happen. You have to train them. When they exaggerate, stop them and say, no, no, no. That's exaggeration. Tell me exactly what happened. No, no, no. Wait a minute. That's only half true. Tell me the whole story. 
you have to train them to learn to speak the truth because often they have forgotten how to do that. They've been lying for so long about their addiction, you have to help them learn to put off every and all form of lying and learn to speak the truth in love. Okay, uh, again, um, trust needs to be earned and rebuilt. Uh, we'll talk about that another day. Um, how, how do you ensure that this happens? A commitment to comprehensive accountability is essential. Uh, Paul Tripp calls it intentionally intrusive accountability. And remember, accountability is only as good as the person seeking it. You cannot make somebody be accountable to you if they don't want to. And I think that's one of the keys of seeing, is this person really regenerate and are they really interested in growing? Are they willing to do that? Uh, Ed Welch, who we just heard in his book, Addictions, talks about areas to look out for, uh, hiding, sneaking, blaming, and, and whatnot. Uh, some good thoughts there from, from uh, Dr. Welch. Okay, uh, so we're addressing the deceit. Changing the subject, rationalizing. Okay, you have all those in your notes. Letter H, you have to deal with relationships. Um, the, the most tragic reality of any addiction situation is the slaughter of relationships that it causes. Um, addiction for an unredeemed person is a symptom of their broken relationship with God, isn't it? A person comes to Christ, and I should have said this back uh, on one of the first slides. I skipped over it. Um, Romans 6 says a Christian is no longer a slave. Okay? What, what does he say? Um, so, Romans 6, so that you are no longer a slave of sin. So if you're redeemed, you can't talk about Christians being slaves because Christians aren't slaves. They're redeemed. They're, they're set free, Romans 6 says. But Romans 6 also says what? You're not a slave anymore, but you can continue to let sin reign, can't you? Okay, so again, this is, this, is, this is Theology 101. You counsel out of your theology, so we better have our theology right. A Christian is not a slave He's redeemed in Christ. He's free, right? Raised to walk with newness of life, Romans 6 stuff. But he can continue to let sin reign. He can live like a slave, though he's not. So when we think about that, that's a symptom, first of all, of a broken relationship with God. A person comes to Christ by grace through faith. He's no longer a slave. But now you look around and there's all these broken relationships. Uh, his relationship with God is restored. But think about his marriage. Think about her relationship with her children. Think about employers, people at church, family members, friends, acquaintances. Um, so, so you find in addiction counseling, there is a whole lot of relationship issues you got to deal with. Okay, So let's just think about some of those in bullet point fashion. Relationships that need to end. Those are relationships that promote the addiction. The drinking buddies. The gambling buddies. The friends at college that all like to look at pornography. You know, whatever it is. Relationships that need to begin. Ephesians 4 talks about the church, a body of Christ, where we mutually build up one another. This person needs the relationships of a local church of godly men and women who will help them to walk in godliness. Relationships that need repair, like the person's spouse or children. Uh, and I would say as a pastor, you're thinking about biblical counseling for some of those people. You're, you're surrounding the church around that spouse or those children or those people affected by the addiction. Relationships, this is interesting. Relationships that have been replaced by the addiction. The man who is so into pornography, he doesn't have a clue how to love his wife. 
because his relationship with his wife has been replaced by the relationship with the pornography. That's what I mean by that. Or, or you know, you think about, and it's funny, people talk about their addiction like a person sometimes. You know, who's that friend that's always with you? The one that's with you at the bar, you know, every night. So relationships that, that actually need, have been replaced by the addiction, addressing that. And then, of course, the most important relationship, learning to walk with God in sanctification and holiness. Okay? Um, Paul Tripp gives some relationship challenges. I've got them here uh, for you. Cooperative denial, social protection. Uh, I have explanations there so you can see um, uh, just some explanations. Are there, are there any blank, blanks there other than relationship challenges? No? Okay. So I'm going to move on for sake of time. You can read up on those. But basically, these are some of the common challenges in relationships you're going to see with addictions. Uh, letter I, financial matters. Uh, addictions cost money. And so you're going to have to do some financial counseling, typically, in situations like that. Okay? And then notice, there's all these accompanying issues, right? Other personal issues, marriage issues, parenting issues, heart issues. We just heard uh, Dr. Welch talk about shame as, as a huge part of the situation of every addiction. But you also have things like guilt and anger, fear, worry, anxiety, loneliness, doubt, pleasure, failure, discouragement, grief, all those things that accompany the addiction and need counseling. And of course, there's vocational or ministry implications. If, if somebody says, I'm admitting I'm doing these things, they might lose their job. If they're in ministry, they might lose their ministry. So, so you're ministering, not being naive about those things, but making sure you address those other real implications. Okay. Now, the last two uh, bullet points, principles here, are on crafting a repentance plan and crafting a temptation plan. Um, tomorrow, during one of the breakout sessions, I'm going to have a whole session on how to do this. Okay, So I'm just going to wave my hands. And uh, you have wonderful speakers to hear, so I'm not saying come to my seminar, but at least listen to the recording and I'll go over those in detail. But for now... Uh, there's two, two plans you need to develop in counseling addiction. The first is you need to craft a repentance plan, a unique, tailored plan that helps that person to know what his repentance looks like. What is repentance? It's a spiritual U-turn. You're going the wrong direction, and you're going to learn how to go the right direction. Well, in addiction, that's largely what you're doing. As in any counseling issue, you're helping them to learn to repent in ways specific to the counseling issue. So things like confession. Radical amputation, working with a physician, intentional time in the Word. Those are all necessary um, ingredients of an intelligent, wise repentance plan for people. But it's not just that. It's things like this. Getting involved in their local church, small group discipleship, regular biblical counseling, a ministry in serving others, and perhaps a, a Titus II sort of mentoring disciple relationship. Repentance needs all of those elements if that person is going to grow and change. And then the last thing you need to do, and, and remember, it's not a matter of if, but when, a wise counselor in helping somebody struggling with addiction will prepare that person for temptation. It, they're going to be tempted again. They're going to be tempted, and your job is to prepare them for that. Uh, again, we talk about this at length in the session tomorrow, but, but here, here's my basic temptation plan. You remove yourself from the temptation. You get to some sort of safe place. I remember talking about this with a college student struggling with pornography. He'd go back to his dorm room. And I said, you need to leave your dorm room and go to Taco Bell across the street. 
Because if you're sitting in Taco Bell, you're not going to be looking at pornography. So get out of that. That's the Joseph method of temptation, right? You flee. Uh, you pray for help. You call your accountability person. And then you immerse yourself in the word until desires change. It needs to be simple and, and, uh, and short, just, just like that. Okay? There's some resources in your notes. And then you have an appendix of all sorts of other stuff that we couldn't get to. Um, let me pray. Father, I pray that we would take these tools and we would learn with your grace and help to wisely minister to those struggling with addictions. Lord, might we love these people in your name and might we minister the truth, remembering that we're not, we're not working on a car. We're not, we're not building a space vehicle. We are doing gospel ministry in the lives of people. So we use these tools not like a project, but as we lovingly and wisely minister to a hurting and struggling person. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Would you give us grace to take these truths from your word and help the people around us that are struggling. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.